clean cut but morally corrupt it's forwards backwards podcast not from the corner of glenway and monroe and not from the give me some truth studios this week we talk geordie gaffers sunderland schadenfreude and pens as presents i'm keith Ponywaz, and as always i'm joined by the paul weller and bruce foxton to my rick buckler kyle carr the hardest working man in madison sports podcasting and Dan Fallon, who is now merely an ex-officio member of the podcast. Dan, Kyle, Greg Vanny resigned from managing Toronto FC last week, and the rumor mill has him taking over the LA Galaxy. Would this be the biggest LA to get Toronto move since Drake? Sub-question, can one of you explain Drake to me? <laughs> <laughs> so, how to explain Drake? I feel like Drake is someone that there's four sides to him. There, there's like the meme that was like Manly has like four moods. So mood one, drunk calling your ex. That's a cliche Drake moment. You're going to call your ex. You're going to do it drunk. It's not going to be sober. It's going to be embarrassing. Mood one. Mood two, the I'm feeling myself and I'm really cocky stage. Drake is, for all intents and purposes, really, really good as a musician. And he in here, I'm going to disagree that. with you because I don't think he can rap. I don't think he can dance. I don't think he can sing. I, I'd say he can, but that's mood two. Mood three, I'm going to try something. And even though it doesn't make any sense whatsoever, people will still love it. Like when he puts on a Patois accent, when he starts singing in Spanish. Things don't add up, but it works. He still gets hit music. And mood four, the thoughtful, I'm trying to be two steps ahead, Drake. This is more in terms of his business his brand, and his branding. So that is Drake in a nutshell. It's an all-encompassing four moods, and we don't know which one you're going to get. Uh, Dan, your first he- question, Keith. I'm going to go with the best Toronto to L.A. move. Got to be John Candy. That's a hard one to top, especially this time of year where you have uh, you know, planes, trains, and automobiles, which is there a fantastic, really the only Thanksgiving mm-hmm. movie out there. So, so Kyle, now disagree with me here, but I feel like he's auto-tuned bad R&B music, but he doesn't sing. And I've seen his dance moves in the, you know, uh, Hotline Bling video, and they're not that good. And, uh, like, I, I feel like he, he acts like a rapper with all of the, the various rap stuff without actually having any of the, like, skills of a rapper. But we also have to remember... He was an actor beforehand. So he's really good at acting like he can't do things, or he's really good at acting like he can do things. So you have to keep that in mind as well. The dancing hotline bling, it wasn't meant to be good, but he's doing the dancing using his acting skills to make it look like he's good. He's, he's I'm going to go ahead and say, I think the fact that we've, expe- we've spent this much time talking about Drake <laughs> is probably why Drake is still popular, because you two are just like prattering on about him. I don't. I, so yeah, I mean, I think he's obviously figured out a get way to people to talk about him. So. Drake is the music that makes me feel old. Like I listen to That's that, and I'm like, that I, makes just, you feel I old. just don't get it. I just don't get it, and I feel old. So uh, anyway, a uh, guy who who uh, came up playing music that makes me feel young, or was you know more concurrent when Dan and I were coming of age. Uh, very happy to have the the new forward man, uh, Madison manager on the podcast, Carl Craig who at some point, Carl, we promise you, we, uh, likely me, 
are going to confuse you with uh, Madison Soccer Hall of Famer Craig Carlson. Uh, so we apologize for that up front. Um, but, you know, we, we've, we've read a lot about you. you. You know, we've read about punk rock and tour with, you know, tub thumping. And, and uh, we worry a little bit that it's very easy to caricature you, that, you know, you're, you, you can come across as almost like a, a cartoon character to, to, to folks. And so what we wanted to do is give you a chance to, to tell us what you, what you think your story is. And what led you here? On then. <laughs> uh, and if and if you can do it in pithy sound bites in less than three and a half minutes, you know we'd appreciate that as well. So, so what led me here? Um, what led me here? How did I get here? Is it a bit of both? Is that one and the same, or what's the crack here? Come on, help us out. Well, what, uh, what, what, well, first of all, what led you to apply for this job? Let's, let's start um, there. Well, I, when I finished in Minnesota, um, I didn't feel like I'd, I, my job was done as it were. I didn't feel like um, I'd really done myself justice and I had me fill a football. So um, I was keen to get back in the pro game. Um, in all honesty, that was, I, I was kind of left hanging when I finished there. I was I was released as the head coach, but I, I wasn't sort of. I still was on the books, if you will, for another year. I was all well. We just let things get get into position, and then we look to bring you back in, and lots of talk and to and fro. And anyway, I never ended up going back in, other than I did some. Um, I helped them out with the tryouts and the trials for the for the new academy. But so anyway, it was. From my side, it was just sloppy the way the way things ended up, um, and I felt a little bit let down in all honesty. And with that, um, me had started playing tricks and all this stupid stuff. So, and I, it was it was a tough time, and I'll be absolutely honest with you. And I think, you know, it's never easy for anyone um, who loses their job. Um, and I think people out there think football coaches are different because. They kind of sign up to get fired, in a sense. But no, this is like uh, maybe a little different to a lot of jobs because we are expected to be there 24-7 and give our everything to it. Not like you're not expected to work hard in other jobs, but this is once you're in, it's your life, if you will. Yeah, and Dan and I are proof that you can half-ass your way to a lot of success <laughs> in life. So uh, I love it. <laughs> no, so I, I was, you know, seeing what was out there, seeing where I was at. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to be um, invited to to do some work with a soccer, U.S. soccer, and uh, their coach education and that sort of thing. So that was keeping us taking over, and uh, I was really enjoying that. And then, you know, this opportunity came along, and I thought, poof. Uh, I uh, this is a kind of football club based on what I've heard that I want to be involved in. I think you already know that I'm pals with Connor Tobin, and you know over the years since he left Minnesota, he was with us at Minnesota quite a while ago. No, but um, on me, um, you know he he and I kept in touch, um, speaking about life in general, not necessarily about football, but life and philosophy and all this kind of stuff and uh, 
I had a good sense of what was going on in the club. Um, and then when the opening came, which was a bit of a surprise, um, you know, a guy who was who represented me, Matt Cairns, said, do you have any interest? And absolutely. Um, so it wasn't just any old football club I was looking for, or, or frankly, I hadn't been applying for jobs. Um, so when this one came up, that, that, that sort of fits with who I am as a person. Um, seems the front office is, is in line with the fan base. And uh, there you go. So here I am. Uh, Kyle, I think this, this kind of drives with what we were talking about before the podcast, uh, the idea of unfinished business with, with Kyle, what you were talking about, you wanted to ask regarding kind of, you know, this being your Carl's last job a little bit. Yeah, I just remember when you were talking to myself, Andrew, in April, uh, before, during the interview process, you were saying that you would hope that this is, you know, this would be your last coaching job and that you... It, you probably think you're going to get fired though at the same time. So it's kind of tough to like try and balance those two. But I know with like that comment, it kind of made me wonder like, is there something like if you, in the time that you'll have at Ford Madison, what do you think is going to, what do you want to either leave in terms of like, I, I help build this or what is something that you want to create for the club moving forward? Good question. And I, and I think, I look back to not too long ago uh, where Southampton in the Premier League um, sort of, they put that football club together. They uh, hired the coaching staff. They had an ethos and a way of doing business. Now, a lot of their best players were heading up the road to Liverpool or to London in Arsenal. Um, they just had this this turnover of top quality footballers who went, and I think they, they did that for quite a few years and pretty successfully. And then the site they seemed to go off the rails a little bit. I think they probably pushed it a bit too much because they probably got rid of one too many good players. Um, but but early back but back then I thought you know you've built this football club, you've got a solid foundation, you've got a clear identity. And you're also generating enough finances for you to sustain, sustain yourselves as a club, but also generate new players uh, to keep it, you know, keep taking over in the Premier League. Because I think it was, oof, well, show me age. I can't even remember how long ago when Southampton towards, oh, were at the top of the, well, the old first division with Kevin Keegan. So I'm guessing it would be in the 70s, uh, late 70s. Because he kept in Newcastle in 1982, so it was a long time ago. Um, you know, so I thought they had a great model there, and they wavered a little bit. So what I would like to do, my legacy, if you will, here, would hopefully kind of yeah, more than a year. If it's a year, then it's because we've won everything. We're, we're casting bronze outside the stadium, and we're just stuck there, me and Neil. Um, so it's. Uh, so I, I want. <laughs> I think, listen, Daryl and Neil and the club have done a great job this far bring, to bring us where we're at. Understand the club wanted to go in a, in a, in a slightly different direction. Or re, re-jig, if you will, re, refocus. But, you know, I'm, I'm pals with Daryl. I'm not a close friend, but he and I are, are friends enough where I respect the work he's done for the club and brought us this far. Because I, I, I think it's tough, especially you've started from scratch. 
you know, it's been a tough task that he's had to get into, he and Peter Wilt, and then, of course, with the support of Neil and all, all you guys as well in the club. So I think it's important that I acknowledge what those guys have done. What I want to do is help solidify, if you will, what we are as a football club. So when my time comes to move on, then all the things are in place and then you're not searching for a needle in a haystack um, in terms of the replacement. It's like, this is who our football club is. This is this is our ethos. This is how we operate. Let's look for the person who fits the profile. And in that way, you know, the football style doesn't have to change. Hopefully we've done sufficient enough of our work, certainly from already we're, we're looking to get players who fit fit the profile a bit more adventurous, a bit more attacking, a bit more off the front foot. Um, but, but within that, it's, it's then we have established who we are as a football club. And so you guys off the field can say, this is kind of our identity. So whether it's me or someone else sitting in the seat, you, you know, you, well, it is who we are. You, you mentioned the name uh, Kevin Keegan, who is uh, something Liverpool fans and uh, Newcastle fans can agree on. Is it that, are you thinking a little bit as well of the, the old boot room model of, of Liverpool where, I mean, you know, they, they went from strength to strength. They went from, you know, Paisley to Fagan, you know, from, yep. from Shankly, that, that same sort of that you've, you've already nurtured your successor as well. Hopefully, I'm not even thinking of that at this point, but I do think one of the reasons I kept the needle, <laughs> I'm not even kicked the ball yet here, keep going, mate. <laughs> um, no, um, you know, Neil, for those listening, Neil worked, uh, played in Minnesota um, when I was there as well. So I'm no Neil. I'm not near, I've been nearly as close with Neil as I was with Connor. Um, but I've got a lot of time and respect for Neil. And, and frankly, this last week, he's been absolutely outstanding. But it makes no sense to me to to, to come in and, well, I think he's done well. This is, this is a growth period. Um, you know, two years of getting your feet on the ground and starting to grow. And Neil's been a, a substantial part of that growth. He knows the league inside out. He knows the players who have been around. Um I think you've got to keep these threads. You know, he's passionate about the football club. Um, and I think that's, that's important. Well, whether he's my successor or, or not, I mean, I'm, I am i don't feel threatened by anyone. I'm confident in myself. But I do think it's important to retain um, retain part of the roots. <laughs> and, you know, I remember in the, in the 90s, it was the art of war. Maybe... Dan and Keith, you've probably, probably seen that at the time. Kyle, you're probably too young for that, but who knows? You know, but one of the things, you know, there's a million different versions of it. One of the things, is, as I read some version of it, it was like, when you go to war, you know, you don't necessarily decimate the whole community. You, you do what you need to do to, to take over and, and win the, or, you know, take control, if you will. But then you retain the best bits of it and nurture them to, to be on your side. And and I think that, that came to mind when I was chatting with Neil. So I'm not coming in to smash this place apart because I think the foundations are pretty solid. And, and there's, there's lovely people and there's great people within the organisation. So now it's, it's a kind of, you know, take what they've got and help nurture towards where we're going. And, and for me, that, that, that makes sense. Carl, going going back a little bit 
actually a lot further in time. So you, you know, you were trained. Um, I think you went through FA badges, right. We're trained in England mm-hmm. as a coach. Um, yeah. you know, I think particularly, you know, not going to name years, but the certain style of football that was associated with England at that time. But then you came to the United States, I believe as a Corver coach. Is that correct? Um, not, not quite. Um, okay. No, but go on, and then I can I can answer. So you, had, but you you then ended up be, you were a Corver coach at some point, I think, along the, yeah. along the yeah. line. So just, so I, so my question being, how you know how did that those two philosophies of playing football kind of come together, how, or did it change you? Did seeing the way you know a, a more traditional Dutch style, um, how they train players and run sessions, and how that kind of in, influenced you as a coach? No, I, I think. Um, you know, I did my full badge, I think it was 1991, 92. Um, and we weren't, we weren't humping the ball at that point. We're getting that way, but we, we weren't. So there was a big shift. Um, you know, in the mid-80s when I got involved in the coaching side, you know, I think the weather, I think you've got to pay attention to the weather and the climate and the conditions and all that thing. And, and then the community, as, as I recognized with with forward madison you know the culture of an island is considerably different to a culture of a, a massive how to put your finger on see what the culture is in the united states because it's got 50 50 plus different right but i think when you're in an island race um or an island nation there is a bit of a you know protection and fight your barrier borders so that's that's sort of ingrained in in who British people are, um, but pardon me, language. When we played our football, it was always freezing and pissing down. Um, so that determines your style of football as well. Uh, the fields were nothing, uh, even at the highest level in, in the, what, the old first division of what have you. Even the best fields were rubbish compared to what you see these days. So all of these things impact how you, how you grow playing football and how you play a football. There used to be a, a, a thick stripe of mud from one goal mouth to the other. And if, if anyone's listening, you want to go back, look at the 70s, Derby County, no great vision of what <laughs> football was like. I mean, this thing was just a swamp. You know, cows would have their wellies on running through the middle of that thing. Um, but it was like, so what? the best grass was down the sides. So we'd get the ball out of the sides and bang crosses in, you know, that was the only place it could do, or that was kind of how it was. It was crash bang wall of a lot of it, but um, but you know, I grew up in in the inner city in Newcastle, and we didn't play on the fields at first. You know, your, your games would be on the field, but the football development, which everyone harked back to, was in the back lanes. So you know, terraced houses all over the place in in the cities, and uh, on the back there'd be. A ten foot wall one side, a ten foot wall on the other, barely room for a car to get down because it didn't have cars, so many cars dead. So they weren't built or cars to go down. Um, more like a horse and trap, to be honest. Um, but so we played football in the back lanes and the the the, the doors were the gates. So it was all small, predominantly small sided games that were played outside, or uh, 15, 16, 17 a side. On a Sunday afternoon, I would play on the grass and the dads would get on the field drunk from being in the bar. They'd join in as well, you know. So it was a bit like a Shrove Tide game on a Sunday. 
when I was young and then it was small sided games in the back streets um, when it was just the kids. So but back to the to the sort of Cromer stuff. Um the, the reason that comes up it was the company that actually hired me shifted from it was called educational sports programs. And it was a, an English fella called Simon Whitehead who was based in the Twin Cities here with um, Alan Merrick. And, you know, Alan was with the Minis- uh, with Minnesota Kicks way back when. So he'd started this soccer camp type business here in the Twin Cities. And Simon, this fellow, became a business partner and set up educational sports programs. So I was working in football back home there at the time. And a colleague of mine who was with Lincoln City, who was still in the Football League at the time, and came over for a summer. And these guys were hiring coaches and players, you know, typically from the lower divisions to come over in the summer here, which was our off-season over there. And um, so I had numerous offers to come out and do camps and stuff, but I didn't have any interest in that. And uh, Dean had said, oh, well, these actually are coach teams. So, oh, well, tell us a little bit more of that. And I'd, I'd ruptured an ACL. Um, back in those days, you know, I, I was put in a cast from my ankle to my hip and uh, six weeks of that. And then like 18 months of falling off my leg and my pals pushing the buttons on my crutches. So when, when I stood up, I would collapse because one was short on the other. <laughs> and, so... No cartilage in me knee and walk down the street, my legs just give way and fall down with no one around It's Kind of comical like them drunken goats eating the, eating the coffee beans sort of thing. <laughs> Probably like a bloody Monty Python skit, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, after I think it was like two and a half, three years after the injury, I finally got healed. And uh, I was trying to play again and the first time out again it's my knee collapsed on us, so it was. I got an opportunity to come over here, and there uh, I go. So Simon, Simon, then actually, I made the first call on his behalf to uh, Charlie Cook, who was the guy leading cover at the time. Like his son is is the main man these days. Um, but yeah, that's how I got into cover, and uh, I, I became familiar with it back in when I was doing stuff at um, Newcastle Football Development Scheme and watched, I'll, we dribbled, I was a dribbler, um, and I loved that, I loved uh, Newcastle United, Terry Hibbert, um, Jimmy Smith, uh, there was a guy from Wales called Leighton James, um, John Robertson at uh, Nottingham Forest at the time, but I loved wingers, and fancy myself as a bit of a winger, um, so, so that was how I kind of got into the cover and that kind of thing, but um no, the FA, it wasn't necessarily, you know, with Graham, um, what was Graham Taylor, become much more direct with the winning formula. Um, but it, it wasn't quite there when I, when I was more involved back then. Well, uh, well, and that brings up, you know, uh, Dan and I were both coached by multi, multiple, um, you know, English coaches. And we, I, I always wondered, were, were we like uh, – you know, was the United States like football coach Australia? Like, did you do, you know, do something terribly wrong? And they sent you to the penal <laughs> colony of the, the United States in the late eighties, early nineties. It, 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 it felt it, that way at first. <laughs> I was here for like, 
I think I, I shared with Kyle, but I don't know if you know Dan or Keith. Um, I've been here for a couple of days, and um, I know on me dark um, goth look that I'm giving you right now, I've got ginger hair, and I've never been anywhere as hot as when I got here, and I think it was like 82 degrees, 90 degrees, and within minutes, blisters on the top of my ears, my face was fried, and um, I went coaching, I thought, what the hell am I doing here? Because it was like, so I was, I didn't know what I'd landed into, but it certainly, I think I had like only slightly fewer interviews than I had for this job in getting my coaching gig back there. Um, so it was quite a long process, I promise you. And it, But it didn't turn out to be uh, what, what I thought I was getting into. And the other thing, why I thought, what am I doing here was, it was right, it was just before the World Cup. I was just at the start of the World Cup in 94. And I was in a place called Eden Prairie here in the Twin Cities. And there was a bar um, near the fields. And uh, we, we popped in to watch the match because it was very, you know, it wasn't, the World Cup wasn't on everywhere. And uh, we sat at the bar, I think, trying to watch, I think it was Ireland. And it was me, uh, one of my colleagues was a woman called Hope Powell. Hope went on to become the England women's head coach. Did really well with the England women's programme. And then another colleague, um, the fella called Alan Young, who was a Scottish international and played with Leicester City amongst other clubs. So we were sat there trying to watch the game and uh, the OJ Simpson thing happened. And we're looking around and like, what? What's going on here? <laughs> and there was people crying at the bar and they turned my bloody football match up. And I think I had my hand in my head, uh, my head in my hand, I think, and uh, I knew you a lot were nuts, but I didn't think it was it. <laughs> so, oh, it was mental. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I remember that that summer, you know, you, we were playing at tournaments throughout the Midwest and it'd be yeah, a challenge to get them to put the, the World Cup on because they'd rather have, you know, the baseball game or, or whatever it was that, that afternoon. Um, the one, one thing I'm curious about is, you know, with, with Corver, you know, that there's uh, additional, you know, sort of, sort of uh, exposure to, to other methods there. And I know, um, you know, one of the things that, that I've read about is, is your use of hypnosis in, in coaching. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, I think in some senses, American sports, psychology as far as i could tell maybe as of 10 15 years ago advanced and moved in very different directions in english sports psychology and i'm i'm curious if you know you've you've used that to to change how you coach at all or you know what you've learned from being in the united states in terms of how you you coach no i, I think soon as i homestayed with the family when i first got here and they would ask me questions that I don't even consider just because they wanted to know and didn't know football. I think I had this chat with someone not too long ago saying could take so many things were taken for granted over there because they were stepped in the game. You know, you just knew or everyone watched the game, so there was things you could just do without even thinking about. Um, you know, even I remember thinking back to even when I did my first coaching license and uh, one of the topics, my first technical topic was teaching them how to swerve a ball, you know, and to give the visual just on the field, it was like, just think about Michel Platini, you know, and he was playing for Juventus at the time. It was like, there you go. 
show you I'll show you how to do it. And and so he had those kinds of references, but we didn't have those here. Um, so that was certainly a massive part of it. And um, you know, it, it's interesting because I wasn't always looking at sports psychology. I was just looking at psychology in general. And then it also with, with sort of periodization, which is, you know, now it was Victor Frage in, in I think it was like 1980, sorry, 92, of whom um, Jose Mourinho and Villas Boas were disciples. I, I was, you know, I, was, um, I wasn't privy to, to that information at the time, but I was looking at new ways to try and train footballers. I was looking at periodization, but trying to adapt what was going on in athletics, going on in bicycle riding and these things, and bring it to football. Um, so I've always had that sort of inquiry in mind to try and do things a little bit different in order to get to where I wanted to be. Um, so, you know, I, I remember, <laughs> actually it was probably one of my greatest moments in football. I was um, I was doing my UA for air license and I did, a, you know, I, I did an upgrade through the FA I think it was back in 98 or somewhere, and I, I did a little presentation. Um, Bill Bezik was leading the, leading the, the lecture at the time, and uh, I think it was just before the night, during or just before the 1998 World Cup. Um, George Burley was in the room, who, you know, Scottish international, and anyway, a lot of, lot of top players from the UK, um, European Cup winners, etc. But I'd been studying, you know, applying psychology to football and I'd worked in a, in a um, high school called Hopkins High School and I uh, decided one year, uh, you know, I was just going to apply football at a rudimentary level, um, but really going to use this as an experimental sort of a laboratory something way more important than it is. It's so totally pompous to say it, to say it but... <laughs> It was like, you know what, I'm going to experiment. I'm going to get a more than enough football to get on with it, but I'm going to use this for me because I know I can help them with the football, but I'm going to delve into other areas. So my main focus was just getting my head right. And, I mean, I got that. It was, it was a tremendous season. I wouldn't be the first coach to have done well in high school, you know, but it was, I, wasn't, I wasn't so worried about the football. It was purely about applying these new new processes and getting the players in the right place and the right you know right mindset. And uh, you know we had relative success and oh there's something in this. So I continued, and when I went on to do um, you know I went back over over the UK to do that UEFA upgrade thing, and uh, it was amazing because. These guys weren't think necessarily thinking in those terms at the time, and um, I, I felt very confident that I could speak and actually, you know, speak with absolute confidence and in, in share information. And, and um, it was uh, one of the great books at the time. It was uh, what do you, Pat Riley, um, the Winner Within, and that was a that was such an inspirational book to me. Um, and I had a couple of copies of that with me, and uh, people were asked, "Oh," and I had, I had one. So, I'm, oh, can I get that? I gave him this book, and he was over the moon. And um, you know, good friend of mine who was a colleague as well, John Carver, who 
who was at Newcastle. He actually was at Toronto for a while, and then he was at Newcastle, and he's he's been around. So, you know, I went back, and John and I worked together over that. But it was just, it was great because they were so focused on the football, and at the level I was working at that time in the youth game, I I had enough football, if you will, in me to be able to go on. But I wanted to go deeper into other aspects to make it much more of a, a holistic. Um, experience for the players and a big part of that was um, I've known so many footballers who have done really well um, but would would struggle sort of psychologically when it comes to actually getting it done during the game and, and the mentality then in those days was well there's plenty more where they came from which I don't think is necessarily the case anymore um, but I, I think it's it's also um, not really the right way to treat young young people. You know, <laughs> chew you up, spit you out, and away you go. So yeah, that that was kind of where I got into into more of the psychological approach with it. And also, you know, I've had my ups and downs in my life. I've had my injuries. My upbringing wasn't perfect. Like you know, I, I'm not going to bleat about that. It just it was what it was. Um, I realised at some point that I uh, struggled with PTSD, not a, not based on a, a single action, but just through life, and um, that wasn't that wasn't good. Obviously, um, I don't need to go into in detail here, but and I uh, searching for ways to to sort of centre myself as well, um, you know. So. All of these things, football, trying to centre myself, and also through sort of centering myself, trying to find myself. You know, I want to be able to help people who find themselves in a similar situation that I found myself in, and and help them. You know, sort of help them find solutions to their situations as well. So that's kind of a. I know I've spoken quite a bit there. That's where I'm coming from, really, in that regard. Yeah, and I think one of the things when we were talking, you were talking about how trying to take a different approach, and obviously some of the things that with Ford Madison's roster is with the players that are returning, it's definitely a younger squad uh, for those mm-hmm. that are returning. With Mike Vang, who's only 19 or 20, you have Josiah, who's still, like Josiah and Gustavo, all of these guys are st- and Noah Fusan, they're in their 20s. They're still mm-hmm. early in their career. So you think that's going to be something that you can try and use to carry over, maybe not to the full extent that you did in the past, but I think are there going to be some elements of what you've done that you think could either help you relate to these players more or help them grow or just trying to be at least get those first impressions into them early on? I think it all starts with creating consciousness um, and awareness and I think all I do all I, all I try to do or want to do is help people create uh, understand that they have the power within them to solve their issues and then I have some techniques to help them find solutions so one of the first things Kyle for me is to is to ask the question uh, what would you like to have happen and there was a fellow called David Grove, who was a, a psychologist from New Zealand, who started to adapt these processes and this this methodology called clean language. So basically, he, he 
you know, through observation and, and et cetera, establish that. It, it makes perfect sense, but until you're aware of it, you, it, you just don't know, like a lot of things, right? So hey, we, we essentially live our lives through the metaphors that we, that we speak of. And, and of course, we speak through metaphor because we're trying to create an external version of an internal ex- experience. So you and you know what's going on inside of you, but only you know that intimately. And in order to try and ex- try and share that with me, you try to find words. So you know, and, and the words are connected to society, experience, all those sorts of things. So this clean language approach is to try and help people. And there's a no- number of outstanding people, uh, practitioners and teachers throughout this country and, and in the UK. And, and over the last few years, I've been involved with group online groups using Zoom before Zoom was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, you know, I should give a little shout out. I don't know that they'd ever hear this, but there's a woman called Judy Reese out of the London area in the UK who does an absolutely wonderful job. Um, and there's there's a woman um, in the US here called Gina Campbell. So anyone's interested in this stuff, you might want to look those two people up. But I, I find, and Connor, Connor Tobin, I was sharing some of this stuff with him. And um, even even back then when he was leaving Minnesota, I'd shared, went through a few of these techniques with, with Connor um, just to help him find who he was and where he was, get centered and uh, come to some solutions to where he, you know, to where he wanted to go. And every time I would go home at the end of a season, a close friend of mine would say, oh, I want you to meet so-and-so. And a lot of these were young fellas who were either in professional football or, were, you know, been released and were in the college game and looking get, to get back into the pro game. And I would sit and have a coffee with them and, uh, they'd share their story and four hours later or what have you, it would be, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it would, it, it's certainly, um, it's not something that I will impose upon players, but it's just a, an, an openness um, and, and an understanding that we all are, we find ourselves where we find ourselves. And, you know, just uh, as I was thinking about stuff, the other day, um, and, and I alluded a little bit, Kay, when you and I were chatting um, a couple of weeks back. You know, we live on this planet and we live on this earth, and uh, your your world is your world and mine's mine. Um, we share the same space, but we have our own experience of it. You know, and an NLP presupposition is um, the map is not the territory. You know, so um, we create our own versions um, of what the world means to us and how we see it. And society sort of influences how we create our version of the world. And so it's important that this awareness um, is brought into the, into the context so then I can get an understanding where individuals are. So just because I think a wonderful example of that is, let's say, you know, we had a shared experience, let's say, two years ago, we're still best mates. You, you know, revisit the story and you say, oh, remember when this happened? I say, well, that didn't happen. He said, yeah, it did. I said, no, it didn't. Even though we're in the same time, the same space, experiencing apparently the same things. 
how we perceive it is totally different. And I think it's just that, that awareness of, which is key for me because what I think I'm saying to them, what I think I'm giving them might just be there. <laughs> yeah. So that's, uh, that's kind of where I'm at. How do you how do you put this in practice? Do you sit down and go out to coffee with all of your players every week? Uh, do you have you know a routine where you meet with everybody and, and chat? I mean, do you have office hours like a professor? How do you you know put this I in think practice? It's funny. I'll not name names, but we had a, a really nice eye. I say we Neil and I, without sort of on my getting into the any sort of intimate detail. I think we created, you know, had a lovely conversation with a player. I'm thinking, when was it? It was only last week, but it seems like <laughs> 10 years ago. <laughs> no, I, I think, you see, what I want is, is an openness and a frankness from the players because if he has issues um, and, and it affects the way he's, he's operating in his workspace, then I need to know that. But I have to build trust in the first place. I have to build trust to say, well, look, I'm going to give you what I think you need. I'm going to lay lay out within a framework what I want from you. But I I, I give you that with honesty and, and with compassion and integrity. But it's not necessarily how you might receive it. So I have to be aware that they will receive it however they receive it. But then I have to create a space when there's an open dialogue Think of, think of it like this. And I did that on purpose. <laughs> so that pause is where we create meaning. And if you think of a language, think of a language, maybe you've been out in town and you went to a community and you hear people speaking, and you hear the noises and the tone and the tempo and the cadence and all of those things. And yet, you can't quite decipher what it means. And then you go back time and time again to a similar environment. And then you start to notice the gaps between the noises, which then we take to, to mean, oh, those are the words or those are the sentences. So it's actually the gaps where the meaning is created. So for me, it's, a, it's important to create space so that understanding can both be absorbed, the meaning is absorbed by you as the individual, and then we put it in within the context, and then we see where we are. So that, for me, is a key piece in how I will go about my business, um, and a key piece for anyone. Again, it's that sort of understanding and awareness Um but creating that kind of environment is important because we inherently make assumptions anyway. But, and, and that's, we have to, because there's so much goes on and we're set up um, to save us from ourselves. And those filters are in place for a reason. 
you know, so, and, and we all have them and we all utilize them based on who you are, where you are, context, psychology, you know, situation, whatever. We, we have to filter stuff and we often lose things in the filtration system. And so now it's just to bring it back and create that, that create the space um, which will allow us to create meaning for ourselves. And then the players and I have to marry in that regard where we need to have be on the same page. So, so yeah, that's, that's what it's about for me. Yeah. And I was going to say, one of the things you mentioned was community and obviously you growing up in the Newcastle area. Um, and now you're coming and you were in Minnesota and now you're coming to Madison. I guess the thing I was going to ask is what are some of the similarities you see you see between even Minnesota and Madison or Newcastle and Madison, and what are some things that you want to try, at least in terms of getting more involved with the supporters and getting more involved in the culture of Madison? I think there's <laughs> easy, this easy similarity between Wisconsin and Newcastle is beer. <laughs> <laughs> Work hard, play hard. You know, we used to have a brewery there in Newcastle, you cut the, the Scottish and Newcastle breweries or the Newcastle breweries was literally less. Well, I think I can say literally less than I'm doing me money longer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Newcastle brewery was right outside the stadium, St. James's Park. Not there anymore, got knocked down. You can stand in the stadium and smell the hops brewed on a Saturday afternoon. Um, so, there's that big sort of beer drinky culture where, you know, it's uh, work hard, play hard. Don't take ourselves too seriously. Um, love, love life to its fullest uh, when not at work and, and yeah, work hard. Um, Minnesota, not, I mean, similar in terms of the demographic of the United fans, certainly the dog clouds and the TF, uh, TNAs and those sorts of groups, um, you know, involved in, in sort of helping build the community um, while supporting the football club. So, if you will, the connection to the football, using the football as somewhat of a focal point or a hub to bring great people together, uh, whether it be just to have a good time or, or for, for the greater good in the community, but certainly using the football club as a place of focus or place of reference from which you can grow. Um, in Newcastle, that didn't exist. Football in those days, and I still think to an extent, is certainly with, um, you know, you, you go back and forth. Um, it wasn't as, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think it was necessarily connected in the social context, the, the social um What's the word I'm looking for? It wasn't as connected to the community as you guys are, as Minnesota is, or, or football in general is in the United States. Remember where it started? Um, it was basically, you know, after after it became um, a pastime for the rich, it became sort of exercise and entertainment for the working poor. Um, and, and thus the three o'clock kickoff on the Saturday, which was a half shift. Saturday was a half shift from the factories. So predominantly you're off work. There's some entertainment going on. Sundays back then in a, in a Christian country, people went to church and that was your day off. Um, so yeah, 
but but for us tying it to you know the greater good and social needs etc it, it's there's a great there's a big element of that these days but that wasn't necessarily the case for me growing up in England um, with the football it was it was what we loved to do it was our passion but it wasn't necessarily connected to the community as, as we are here in the US these days Dan, Dan um, uh, oh I'm sorry Dan yeah, go, no, no, you, oh yeah well, I was going to say one other connection was, uh, you know, uh, at least, uh, and Dan had asked you about Sunderland till I die, you know, and, and <laughs> sort of your enjoyment from that. Um, one other connection I, I wanted to note was that at the opening of Sunderland till I die, uh, people wear their jerseys to church, which I think there and uh, in Wisconsin, you know, probably the only places in the world where that's uh, socially acceptable. But Dan, uh, you know, you had mentioned as well, and w- when we were talking about talking with Carl was, was, you know, le- less of the joke about Sunderland, but h- how do you, you know, football means something differently in Newcastle than it does here. And, and, you know, Dan, I, I guess I'm going to turn it over to you to finish the question, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that is the question. I mean, I think you've kind of, kind of already hit on it. Like there's this difference between it's just completely baked into who you are as a human being, whereas in the United States, a lot of people are kind of finding their way to it and, and, uh, and, and getting that first experience of going to a stadium, being part of a group of people chanting and singing, but then there's this whole other piece to it in the United States. It's kind of bubbled up around football in the last 15 to 20 years of kind of a very progressive engaged, uh, engaged, um, supporters group. And it seems like something you, you kind of are, you kind of bring the, it was born into you, but then you also have this, this kind of progressive uh, community-based side of you. It almost seems like you're this perfect amalgamation of what, uh, of what professional soccer has become in the United States. And I mean, I think it seems like that's what a lot of ways drew you to Madison. Absolutely. I mean, perfect can have a, a, a suffix of a negative end. <laughs> we call perfect something many a time, but never just perfect and stuck <laughs> And wait, one, no, one cla- Carl, one clarifying question. Did you all, did you play for Sunderland as a youth player? I, I used to go, yes, and train and play down there. Absolutely. Um, okay. And that, that was something um, that I used to keep quiet over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it would be a little awkward if you're like, yeah, I'm going to go over to this club. And then I feel like that might start a fight. I feel like that would start a fight. <laughs> Well, I'm, I mean, I'm always like, you know, the, the Jamie Carragher story, you know, his family were died in the wool Evertonians and then he ends up playing for Liverpool. And now his dad is like basically a Liverpool hooligan who travels all over the world. <laughs> stay, you know, I mean, it's it, it's incredible to see, you know, those kind of stories that play out in, in, in England where players get dropped by the club that they desperately love, move on to the, the rival club and then, you know, work their way up the ranks. So, yeah. I was I wasn't quite that good, but um, <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, it was funny. H with a small H hated Sunderland. Um, <laughs> you know when they when they won the cup in nineteen seventy three, uh, I was yeah I was pretty young, um, and I remember Jimmy Montgomery, who was actually a Newcastle uh, fella back in the day. Oh, sorry, Bob Stoker, who was the Sunderland boss at the time actually uh, played at Newcastle in his earlier years when Newcastle were, were still a, a, you know, success, well, still a success. I'm being successful in my lifetime. Um, <laughs> 1927, the last time they won the league. 
but not the Premier League or the Division One. Um, you know, I'm I'm turned 55 in October. There, I've never seen them win diddly. Um, so <laughs> it's like uh, no, but but that sort of thing. We we hit at Sunderland. Um, one of our friends in the neighbourhood somehow, for some stupid reason, decided to support Sunderland. But there was this other part of it. I live right close to the shipyards. You know, both sides of the river, the River Tyne, i.e. Newcastle-upon-Tyne, um, and Sunderland's on the River Weir. So both, you know, Northumberland, um, when I was young, was the county, and then it later became the Metropolitan County of Tyne and Weir. So, you know, Sunderland and Newcastle these days share the same county. Um, it's only about nine miles apart. But back in the days, Northumberland, the border between Northumberland and Durham was the River Tyne. So we used to, as kids, go down the ferry landing where the ferry would take workers from Northumberland, my side of the river, to the other side, to their side. We'd stand on the ferry landing and throw stones Try and throw stones at the Sunderland fans on the other side of the river because we're, you know, stick my two fingers up and <laughs> stupid stuff like that. I mean, just little kids. Just brought, we were brought up like that. And we used to use the term over the water, which, meant, which means over the water. So it would speak as if it was a million miles away. And for anyone who's been over there, I mean, the river is probably 300 yards wide at the most. Maybe 100 in the middle of the city. But it was like, you know, they were they were like a world away from where we were. And it was <laughs> but but you know, the fellas in the shipyards, um, it was predominantly men working in the shipyards in those days. Well, they don't exist, but yeah. So there'd be some some Mackams would work there and they would get the lickings of a dog and vice versa, you know. But predominantly Durham had their shipyards and their coal mine in the Northumberland. We had our ships in our coal mine and yeah, so there was that big rivalry even outside of the football. And then historically, um, Tyneside or Northumberland was, um, you know, supporting the king during the battles with, you know, so it goes even even further back. Um, you know, we allegedly, um, you know, we were royalists and uh, some of them were Republicans and I, I might be wrong, but that's what I, I think was the case. So, yeah, it goes way, way back. Um, you know, so there's a long way around giving you an answer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't Any... even know if you're, I'm not even sure I'll give you an answer. <laughs> <laughs> My next job after this, Kyle, I'll be a politician. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> go, on the good side, though. <laughs> Well, hopefully that's uh, that's many years from today, and it's after they've built you that that statue in bronze. <laughs> I kind of like the idea. No, no, they're of, not building the statue. They're just going to stand and then pour the bloody bronze over it. <laughs> <laughs> right in the flock end. <laughs> yeah, right. That's that's fine. We're, we're, we'll uh, we'll pour the, We'll be the first ones pouring the bronze over you. Uh, but wanted to thank you for your time. Normally, we would. Uh, invite you up the hill to the to the village bar where we would uh, continue the conversation over a pint but we're you know doing this socially distanced but we'd love to have you hopefully soon in the studio and be able to you know watch the team from the flock end soon but wanted to thank you uh for your time uh kyle dan any any last words uh kyle now is your chance to get in a quick line about Giannis and when he's going to sign 
Uh, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. It's driving me up a wall. I, I, at this point, once it gets to December 22nd, I'll have an answer one way or the other. Um, what I was going to say is you need to ask Riley, I believe is, is your brew hoops podcast co-host who likes uh, fountain pens whether they gave him fountain pens or not. I think that's really he the important. He got thing. a bunch of ink, actually. He got like a whole care package of a variety of ink. I'll have to send you the picture of it. So it was fountain pens is what you're telling me. It is fountain pens, uh, yes. Good, good. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, we'll say until next time, and, and thanks again, Carl, for joining us. Forwards, not backwards. Upwards, not forwards. And always twirling, twirling, twirling towards freedom. Freedom.